You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Tusha Agampoti, who is the Director of Engineering at Aurora Solar, a cloud-based solar platform that uses data automation and AI to make solar projects simple and predictable. Aurora's goal is to put the power of data and technology into the hands of every solar professional. Tusha studied computer systems engineering at Carleton and was previously the head of engineering at TRED, as well as an engineering manager at Magnet Forensics, as well as BlackBerry. Tusha, thank you so much for joining us today. We are really excited to talk with you. If you want to go ahead and add anything to that introduction or just say hi, that would be great. And then I'm really excited to, to get into the conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much again for coming. And we're really curious what you were like at the beginning of your career. And I guess that means high school and like university. So can you take us through the process of like what were you like then and how you make your decisions to like what to study in university and so on? Sure. Um, Yes. So, you know, my journey in Canada started when I was 14 because I moved here. Um, I, I was born in Sri Lanka and I grew up in Sri Lanka. So really, you know, at 14, when I moved here, I spent a few high school years learning English because when I first got here, I didn't speak English. So I went through the ESL program um, and math was always, I really enjoyed math. And, um, you know, math, uh, you're not held back in math because of your lack of language skills. So I found coming to Canada, math continued to be one of my favorite subjects because it was certainly the one I was most sure of. Um, and so that continued throughout my, my high school. Um, I also enjoy subjects like um, physics, science and physics were some of my favorite topics. And once I learned English, English also became a favorite, especially because I like to read uh, a ton of literature. Um, so that's a little bit about me in high school. Um, yeah, really a bit of a math nerd I would say and I I did participate in the soccer team and a couple of extracurricular activities because some of my school counselors said you know you want to um, try out for a few um, variety of experiences to kind of figure out what you like Um, and that was really good advice. And then how did you decide to study computer science engineering for university? Yes so I took a computer science class in grade 10 And I honestly didn't have any idea what I was getting into when I first joined. And it was me. And I think I was the only girl in that class. Um, And uh, a lot of the guys in class spent most of the time playing, um, I think it was Doom. I don't know. It was a game back in the day, but I wasn't really into gaming too much. Um, I was just really intrigued. We learned in Turing, which is a really old language um but it was amazing you know i learned how quickly with a few lines of code um you can make the computer do things and if you made a mistake it was really clear because your program wouldn't compile and if you were successful it would there would be amazing things on the screen so i was really hooked um i 
think I knew I wanted to get into engineering. My dad worked at an engineering university back in Sri Lanka. So I used to visit with him to the engineering labs and saw the books and the cool lab equipment. So I was always intrigued by engineering, but certainly I had I, I didn't know about computer engineering until that computer science class. After that, I didn't look back. I, we had an independent study we had to do for grade 12 physics. And the teacher gave the option of like creating, a, writing a paper or writing a computer program. And I was like, I'm going to write a computer program. Um, and that's what I did. It was to solve like um, equations and physics. I wrote a program, which at some point when I was studying for my exam, was able to get the answers more than I could. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that was definitely a turning point, the computer science class in grade 10. Wow, that's really cool. And you mentioned, even with your grade 10 class, that you were like the only girl. And I know engineering is still a very male-dominated field, but it must have been even more so when you studied computer science engineering at university. So did you ever face any struggles with that when you were in university? It's a good question. You know, in hindsight, I could see more of it um, than when I was actually going through it. Um, I think I was pretty focused on my studies, so I didn't, you know, pay too much attention to it, which is a good thing. Um, in hindsight, I could see there were certainly some times when we had groups working on a project. Um, some of the guys stayed very late or got together late and stayed throughout the night to work on, you know, the project. And I remember not being able to join because it wasn't as safe for me to travel late at night, you know, and it didn't feel as safe for me to be in university late at night either because it was, there was a, I wasn't well represented. So in hindsight, you know, I could also see in some groups, perhaps my opinion wasn't taken as equally. And I don't think I knew enough to really articulate it or understand it then, but in hindsight, I could see it a little bit more for sure. But I would say university for most part was okay because, you know, um, there's standards and the tests. Everyone has the same test and all of that um, really helps keep it equitable. I certainly experienced it more when I got to the industry because when it comes to performance evaluations and promotions, um, the standards are not the same. And it's uh, so certainly less equitable once you get into the industry. I have like a follow-up question off that. I'm really curious if uh, you think standardizing the way performance reviews are done more so could help with that, with an industry, like the bias, or because it's very hard to standardize because everyone has different jobs, that might not be a viable solution or a way to help with that. No, I think we can. You know, I, I think for particular roles um, in software engineering, for an example, we have many and we have many levels um, and um, they should be standardized. We're doing our best to do that. I think more, more and more companies in the industry are moving towards that, trying to remove bias from performance reviews by clearly articulating here is how you get promoted, here are the metrics we use. Um, I think that's one of the best ways to actually remove the bias and make sure everyone's treated, um, everyone's contributions have equal weight. I, all of that is really important. For sure. And after university, I'm really curious how you transitioned to your first job and what was the process like from going through university and then having to find your first job in the industry? 
Yes, you know, I did co-op. Um, I wasn't part of the the university's co-op program, um, partly actually because I think there were costs associated with it, and I had very little money as a student. I had OSAP, um, which was great, um, but I did. I found myself an intern position for the summer in my second year of university, and it was just honestly, it was like the landlady where I was renting a room while going to Carleton. She knew someone who was looking for like co-op students at one of her friends, you know, husband's company. So it was really by chance. Um, so I worked there for a summer as a co-op student. And then they asked me to come back the summer after. Um, and then when I graduated, they luckily they hired me full time. So that's kind of how that transition happened. And I'm very fortunate. In hindsight, what I tell a lot of students now is if you do get the opportunity, try more than one co-op placement at different companies because you do learn different lessons at different companies and it kind of gives you an idea of um, what type of culture you like and what type of environment because the culture varies from company to company. Um, luckily for me, I, I really enjoyed the team dynamic and the environment there. So it wasn't a hard decision and I had friends, you know, I had come to call some of these people friends by the time I graduated. So when they offered, um, it was, you know, a relief. And that's great to hear about, and that's a great piece of advice as well. And I know that obviously you worked at now a variety of different companies, and one of the companies that you were with for a while was BlackBerry, where you worked as a software developer, development team lead, and an engineering manager over you know twelve years. So I was wondering what it was like to transition to different positions at BlackBerry, and then when you decided to leave to pursue a role at Magnetic Forensics, like how you knew that was the right decision for you. Yeah, it's a good question. I was at BlackBerry for over 12 years, which is a really long time in someone's career. In hindsight, you know, people ask, like, if you, with what you know now, would you go back and stay just as long? And I probably would, because it was a great time, you know, um, early. And, and because I had switched my role, um, there were many lessons to learn with each role, which was helpful. I felt like I continued to learn and grow. And that's usually what keeps me at a company is if I feel like I'm continuing to learn and grow, then I'm happy to stay. Um, certainly, you know, I spent the first six years or so as a software developer, really just honing my engineering skills, learning how to work on a team, learning how to debug and problem solve. Those are great. And then there was an opportunity um, to add a team lead to our team. And I'm not sure I would have asked for this. Um, which I should have in hindsight, you know, but I had a great manager who at the time came to me and said, we're adding this new role. I think you would be good for this. Do you mind if I put you up to be considered for this? And I really appreciate that because I wasn't as good so early in my career at um, asking for promotions um, or just my confidence in my own abilities was not where it is now you know so I think there were doubts in my mind and some of those doubts were probably imposter syndrome coming from the lack of representation I was still the only woman on that team at the time and then you know coupled with um, not being very good at asking for promotions all of that held me back that I wouldn't have asked but I'm so happy to have had a manager who actually recommended me for the promotion 
And once I became a team lead, and after that, I moved to the engineering manager position, I I didn't look back at all. Um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the um, keeping the team engaged, you know, improving the processes for the team, um, helping them prioritize on what features they built. All of that was really um, satisfying and motivating for me. Yeah, I have a question about kind of the different roles a software developer plays versus a, a development team lead and also then an engineering manager. So could you like outline the responsibilities of each role? And then if you're like a software developer right now, do you think there's something you could be doing to like optimize for being a development lead in the next like couple of years and then the next trajectory to like an engineering manager as well? Sure. Yeah, it doesn't always go that way. Some companies have the, the team lead role, which is like a step up, step in between engineering manager and software developer, I would say. Not all companies have it, um, but, you know, some of my companies did. And um, as a team lead, what I've seen is that usually you don't have people reporting to you. So that means you're not responsible for, like, performance management, you know, performance reviews. Um, career development the same way at a as a team lead you might be helping your team break down like the bigger features that they have to deliver you might be giving technical guidance um you might be working to improve some of the team processes as well as a team lead but then it's when you get to the engineering manager level usually you have people reporting to you everybody on the team would probably report to you and perhaps the tech lead as well then you're responsible for their you know career growth, you're responsible for um, really making sure the team's happy, you know, and that means treating everyone as the individuals that they are figuring out what they all need, which is very different from each other, you know, um, how one person wants to grow is going to be different from another person. So really understanding your team members' um, skills and areas of improvement really well, um, and focusing on that. Um, that's a lot of what engineering managers do and then of course working with the team to make sure they're building um, the right features that brings the right customer value making sure they're building in a way that's um, easy to maintain the code making sure they're sharing knowledge with each other all of that comes from the engineering manager role I would say interesting so this is this is really interesting for me because there's like you learn how to be an engineer in school and then you work as an engineer and that in essence like a large part of it is like the shipping code from what i see working mm -hmm. in software development and then <clears throat> if you want to like get promoted and work as like a development team lead or an engineering manager you kind of have to have a whole extra set of skill sets that aren't really taught in school so where could you say like you could develop these um like skill sets while you're working on the job and then another question I had was, um, what's the difference? Like, do you think to become a development team lead, you should first be a senior developer? Or do you think like the process, like, or is that not like a standard process to go through? I think most of the time you, I have seen folks get to the senior developer level before they move to an engineering manager or a team lead level. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It's just most of the time that's, what I've seen um, and what I tell people there's a lot of people you know I meet 
early in their career who sometimes come to me and say, I would love to be an engineering manager. And, you know, this might be new grads who come and tell me and I tell them it's too early for you to decide that. Don't decide that too soon because you don't know. Um, I have folks who have gone to the engineering manager role and then, you know, learn that actually this is not for me. And that's okay too. Your career is not always linear. It's really a wavy line. Um, and it's okay. It takes courage to kind of decide that, no, this is not the path I want and, you know, follow the other path. Because in, in both, there's a lot of room for growth. You know, like at Aurora and at other companies I've worked at, the way I phrase it is you grow at the company by increasing the impact that you make. And there's a few ways you can do that. You can make an impact um, in people leadership as an engineering leader. You know, you can increase the impact that you have on others and their performance. And, you know, that really impacts the company as an individual contributor. So if you move from like, you know, a developer to a senior developer and then to a staff level and then there's principal level, as you grow in those levels, you don't have anybody reporting to you, but you continue to increase your impact. And after the senior level, I would say the leadership skills um, are shared as an engineering manager or as a staff engineer, it does require um, a certain level of um, your ability to advocate, your ability to influence your team. You know, all of those skills are really valuable. And um, those are kind of the skills that you look for a leader, someone who um, continue to look for process improvements, continue to advocate for what could be improved, who kind of has an eye for that, you know? Not only do they see it, they're able to rally the people to actually get them to fix it and make improvements, you know? Looking at efficiency, looking at what's slowing us down. And then if you wanna go into the people management site, ideally you're looking for someone um, who's empathetic. Empathy and compassion is really important. And someone you, who's good at giving feedback to their teammates, someone who actually, um, you know, caring about your teammates is really important. Someone who shows a great deal of care, um, good communication, you know, communicating to the right audience, um, which is a skill I continue to learn. And, and, you know, I didn't have that coming out of university. Um, so those are a few of the differences, but there's, like I said, a set of similar shared skills in either track. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining that. And then Right now you work at Aurora Solar. So can you tell us a bit about that company and its mission? Sure, yes. Um, you know, really we're working hard to reduce the soft cost of solar. And what that means is, you know, the cost of the panels, the cost of the material, all of that um, is separate, but then it's the cost it takes to actually um, figure out exactly what you need to install. You know, like all of those measurements, figuring out like how many panels, the number of panels and how they're placed, everything to do um, before you actually get to installing solar on the roof. Um, and there's a lot of costs there and we're working really hard to reduce that because the company mission at the end of the day is to um, bring access to solar and really access to sustainable energy for everyone in the world which is a great mission and um, aligns with my values quite a bit. So it's a great company to be part of. That is so interesting. And 
I'm curious about what your day-to-day schedule as director of engineering looks like. I know you were just talking about, you know, uh, like different kind of roles that you have to play um, as different positions, but specifically at Aurora Solar, what does that look like for you? Um, Sure, yes. I have five teams right now that I support that report into my organization, Um, five different engineering teams um, building, you know, different parts of our application. And um, they all have engineering managers who, you know, support the day-to-day work of that team and who support the career growth of the individuals of that team. Um, So, you know, I would say at this level, what I do is a lot of um, engineering org-wide initiatives. So I like to have a good understanding of what's working well in the engineering organization, what could we do better, you know, what processes need to be changed. And the way that how I get a good signal of that is by having a lot of conversations. So I do have a lot of meetings in my calendar every day. Um, I have skip level conversations with the engineers that are on my five teams at a regular cadence. And then I have one-on-ones with my engineering managers who will, of course, escalate if they're something they need me to advocate on or something they would like my help on. Um, and then I have meetings with the other directors at Aurora. We do a lot of collaboration on engineering organization-wide improvements, you know. Um, And then I have meetings with my VP once a week. Um, And I meet with other department leaders as well, like customer success organization or marketing or sales. As needed, there's meetings that I have to have um, with department leaders, uh, really to problem solve, to find inefficiencies, and unblock. Uh, some of my work is really just unblocking. Um, unblocking people and creating an environment where they can do their best work and then getting out of their way. That makes a lot of sense. And at Aurora, one of the main, I guess, theses behind it is that you should be able to design photovoltaic systems as easy as you're able to install them. Um, and so I'm really interested in the process of engineering that because these systems have to be personalized but they also have to be simple so how do you balance that trade-off when you're making solutions it's a good question i think you know when it comes to personalization it's really um giving choice giving all the options available which a lot of those decisions do come from our product management team but really you know if you're Um, the companies that use their software, they're the solar installers, you know, so it's like those are the businesses that are working with the homeowner who will decide how many solar panels they want on their roof and where they want that installed. So making sure that they have the choices available to them, you know, so that they can be successful in getting that homeowner to put solar on their roof. Um, that means having all of the ty- different types of panels that are available to them. That means, you know, giving them the data on what rebates are available in your jurisdiction, depending on where you live, giving them all the data that they need about um, weather data. You know, we use historical weather data to figure out, like, how much um, sun do you get every season, you know, across your roof and then you know running shading analysis on all of the obstructions and trees around the house to make sure they have a very clear picture of exactly where you should install those solar panels to get 
you know, maximum value. Um, and then we integrate with like green banks so that, you know, the homeowners know like what loans might be available. So really, I think to personalize, you just need to be able to give all of the, a lot of the data and choice so that they, they have that to make a informed, smart decision um, so that they'll be happy with what they choose. And then when it comes to, you know, simplicity, for me, designing software, it's my preference really, because uh, when you build something, chances are you might not be the one to maintain it later. So if you're writing code, you have to always think of like, how can I build this system in a way that someone else can step in here and debug this code later? And those are lessons I learned, you know, as I grew in my career, I think coming out of university, I didn't always think of it that way, but now I do. So, you know, keeping the solution as simple as possible is always my recommendation um, because complicated code is really hard to debug, you know, and bugs happen. We're all human. You know, I think um, assuming that there's not going to be any bugs in your code would be incorrect. So knowing that bugs are going to come up. So, you know, making it easy for someone to debug through what you build um, really just helps the entire team, helps the company. That makes sense. And obviously this code is very complex, but for someone maybe in high school who's interested in, you know, code and like something like solar or sustainability, do you have any ideas for projects kind of on a smaller scale to be able to develop those kinds of skills? It's a good question. You know, I think a lot of the skills that we hire for are what you learn in university. Um, I think some of the, the tech stack that we have is pretty standardized across a lot of the companies. So there, there aren't specific skills we're looking for. That being said, we do have one of my teams is our computer vision engineering team. You know, so, um, so there is some, you know, experience um, with ML, like machine learning or AI or computer vision experience. If you have that, um, that's important. If you want to join the computer vision engineering team, we have some of our CAD teams. You know, if you have some CAD experience, it's really valuable. 3D modeling experience. So there are some teams that look for these um, unique skill sets and some, if you've done some projects in that area, I would say for Aurora, really one of um, what we look for is your passion more than anything else. Um, we love to see folks who are just as excited as we are about um, climate tech, sustainability, clean energy, you know? So if you can talk us through in the interview process, how you're interested and how you're passionate about it, it doesn't even have to be, you know, showing a project that you worked on necessarily. We do love people who are just passionate about the industry in general. I love that. And that kind of leads directly into my next question in terms of how you foster a sense of excitement and connection to the company's mission with the people working on your, I guess, various teams. Yes, you know, at Aurora, it's really easy. Um, and I think for the rest of my career, I would always want to work at companies where I'm really aligned with the mission and the mission of the company does have this really positive societal impact. It goes such a long way when you work at those companies. Um, and I would say this is my second time in my career where I'm working at a company like this. You can, you can feel it in the culture. You can feel it 
in all of the people who join. They're already here because they care about the mission and they're aligned. So there's really strong mission alignment and it makes it easy to be a leader in this kind of organization because you're already getting this like additional level of engagement and passion from everyone. Aside from that, I would say what what's important for any leader to do is um, continue to give them the vision, continue to tell them why, you know, so when it comes to like, when we pick what features or what products we're going to build for the year, making sure the team understands here is why we're building this, this is the value it will bring to our customer. And then, you know, it's always sharing the vision for the quarter, vision for the year. Here is where we want to go. And here is why. Um, that always um, builds more engagement. It's great to hear about those different methods that you have. And I'm also curious about the frameworks that you may have developed over the years with your experience at different companies that use to allocate resources in terms of you know, talent, budget, time, etc. for your tech projects. It's a good question. I think for budget and time, um, it's most important just to understand the constraints. You know, like any company... I've worked at if I need to know is are there budget constraints am I able to hire all of the people I need to hire for the team or can I only hire like you know two out of the five people I need having a good understanding of that is really important and then when it comes to time it's the same thing when you're building features you need to understand is there is there a deadline was there is there something we need to deliver to the customer by a particular date I do my best not to set date expectations with a customer because in engineering we're always solving um new problems you know we're never solving the same problem twice so that means there's always unknown so it means um our time it's always estimates and you're going to run into unknowns things are going to come up and you know because of that I do my best not to communicate dates to the customers more just trying to understand what value do we need to provide so that I have a really good understanding of that and then building kind of back from that to figure out how to iteratively deliver value. And then when it comes to building a team, I do my best to build a balanced team in that like I wouldn't build a team with just really senior engineers or really junior engineers. I think the learning goes both ways. If you have a balanced team where the more senior engineers get a ton of learning from having to coach and mentor, mentor more junior engineers and then the junior engineers often bring new ideas they bring new energy you know and um and they're just really excited to learn and um so i i do my best to build balanced teams as as much as possible and diverse teams it's really important as well because you want to get a variety of different perspectives so that you can all pick the best solution and i don't think if you don't have diverse perspectives um I'm 100% convinced that you're not building the best solution. That makes a lot of sense. And that kind of leads well into the next question. So one of the things you had to do while working at Magnet Forensics was you have to build an engineering team in Ottawa. And I'm very interested in team building as well and how that process kind of works. So what were the main things you learned from that process? And what would you say to like, like when do you think it makes sense to hire all like senior engineers or all like interns for example for like a startup or like a, a company doesn't have as much resources like oftentimes there's an inclination to go like one way or the other so from your experience in team building like what would you say to like those schools of thought 
Yeah, I learned a lot of lessons starting the team at Magnet in Ottawa because I was the first hire and, you know, it, it was a privilege, really. Um, a rare privilege as a leader. You don't often get to build a team from scratch. It was great. Lessons learned even outside of engineering because I learned about marketing. I learned about branding because nobody had heard of Magnet Forensics in Ottawa. So just making sure people hear about the company so that the right people would apply. You know, I learned about recruiting. Like I learned about building diverse pipelines. Um, the team did start with, um, I think we had three more senior developers when we first started. I would highly recommend if you're starting a startup, you do want at least one senior engineer. Um, just because having someone who understands the architecture and the design, who can lay a good foundation for everyone else to follow would go a long way. So I wouldn't recommend starting with just interns. Um, you do need someone who could provide guidance to make sure that you're, you know, you've got a good foundation. That being said, if you're building a product that doesn't have product market fit and you're just building features and testing with the customer and then you're going to be throwing those features out, testing again, then I think you have some flexibility in um, what kind of team you hire. For Magnet, though, I think we knew what we wanted to build and we had a pretty good idea and the company had product market fit in a lot of areas. So I was trying to build a team that would, um, a healthy team that would last a good long time. So we had seniors to start with and then we hired some more junior folks we got some co-op students and then we continued to add at different levels as we grew and um, it was great yeah that makes a lot of sense and i'm wondering if you ever had to work in a remote environment for example periods of time and had to manage teams in that process and do you have any advice for like building teams in the remote setting yes i'm fully remote now at Aurora, Aurora Solar, um, we do have a small office in San Francisco, but most of the companies, we're, we're a remote first company. So in that, you know, there's few people who go in once in a while to San Francisco, but often all of us are remote. Our engineering team's fully remote in US and Canada. And um, before Aurora, my last company was also a fully remote company and then Magnet Forensics also moved to remote in the pandemic. It's very different leading teams. Um, I'm used to it now, but when it first happened, plus you're leading teams through a pandemic, um, in a remote environment, I think, you know, I learned um, how to kind of assess, how to support your team members when they're not face-to-face. -face. Um, even just performance improvements and giving guidance, it's, it's harder to do remotely. Building relationships is harder when you're remote. You know, the face-to-face -face time goes such a long way. Um, and I think learning how to ask for help. It's harder, like when our new hires start, I know how hard it is if you're new to a company and you haven't yet built the relationships and you have to ask for help quite a bit in your first, you know, six months at a company, certainly your first three months. Um, so a lot of lessons learned about you know, how important it is to build relationships. How do you help your team get to know each other personally? You know, um, so we've created environments and meetings or, you know, game times so that they get to just 
do something outside of work, talk about something outside of work. We've built in time, you know, um, during our stand-ups where we talk to each other about what we did during the weekend. Just the, the small conversations, they feel small, but they're, they're so important to building um, these bonds. And I like to invest in them so that when you need to have a hard conversation, you can. You know, when you need to disagree with each other, because ideally, I think the environment I want to create is so um, where everyone can share different ideas. You know, that's that's my ideal environment. You need to be really comfortable disagreeing with each other, sharing different ideas, you know, so that everyone's heard and you find the best solution. But because if everyone's just agreeing with each other, it's boring. And also, you don't need that many people in a meeting if everyone's agreeing with each other. You know, that's not a meeting, that's just an email. So finding ways to create the relationships and trust with each other so that you can get on a call and disagree and still like each other at the end of the day. It takes a lot of thought um, and harder done remotely. We do meet at Aurora, for an example. We have meetups where teams get to meet each other face to face. And I think that's really important to invest that you do that a few times of the year so that you know you do build bonds and when we meet we make sure that we prioritize team building like they're not meeting to just sit um together in a room and you know talk about work often when we meet we're out there having some fun with each other instead because you can get work done remotely you know so when you're together invest time to do the relationship building instead um, it's great. I think we have a great culture at Aurora. It's um, it's some of the best I've seen in a remote environment. I would say that's that's great to hear because I've always worked remotely, like in my experience, I guess. And I think it's so hard to make those connections in a remote environment. And so that's, that's really great to hear that you can like do that well. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I learned so much from this episode. Um, could you give us three action items before we wrap it up? Yes. You know, I think if you're trying to decide on um, how you want to go in your career, one of the best advice I would give is don't specialize too early. Just keep your mind open to the different roles that are available, whether it's leadership or the individual contributor track. It takes a few years for you to kind of figure out um, what you're good at and what you like, what would make you happy. Um, so don't specialize too early. And, you know, if I could give my advice earlier, um, I would say try for things that I'm not 100% sure I would succeed at. That's a really valuable lesson. I do more of now, but earlier in my life and in my career, I held myself back and tried only for the things that I knew I was 100% sure of, you know, whether it comes to applying for jobs, you know, or trying for a promotion or even, um, yeah, any of those. Um, but especially for women, I think we, we hold ourselves back um, and don't take as many risks until I tried it, one, you know, a couple of times and then realized that life continues and it's okay. I think everyone should try for something they really want and then maybe fail at it. And then you realize that actually everything's still fine, you know, and then you go on to do much greater things after that. 
um, I think, you know, that would be a good lesson that I would like to pass on. And then I think just reminding yourself that, you know, if you're in a room, you have just as much right, like, especially if you're in a room where you're underrepresented, um, you know, you, you feel this imposter syndrome, you hesitate to share your opinions, um, you have doubts in your abilities, but I think it's so important to remember that a lot of these feelings come from the fact that you're in this room and you're underrepresented. So it's not you, it's the room that you're in, you know, that creates this for you. So just reminding yourself that and remembering that um, you have just as much right to be in that room as everyone else and your, your opinion is just as valid as everyone else in that room. Um, and then, you know, even if you're nervous, um, doing your best to share your opinion anyway. Um, yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks. It's been great talking to the two of you.